Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Nancy, my name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode eight, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1987 cult classic Blood Diner. It was directed by Jackie Kong and written by Michael Saunier a.k.a. Dookie Flyswatter. <laughs> it stars Carl Crew, Roger Dower, Rick Burks, Lynette LaFrance, and Lisa Guggenheim. We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. We would like to welcome a special guest to the show today. We have Allison Pierce with us. Say hi, Allison. Hi, very happy to be here. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) We are so happy and excited to have you on the show. Uh, For everyone who doesn't know, Allison is an associate professor of film at the University of Leeds and a culture critic. She has also written and edited four books, including Women Make Horror, After Dracula, the 1930s horror film, and Korean horror cinema. Allison, you are one of my horror academic heroes, and I am (laughs) so thrilled that you are here. Uh, Please check out her website and newsletter at www.allisonpierce.com. Oh my gosh, I am so excited to hear your thoughts on this film. (laughs) Well, thank you for agreeing to have me and to talk about Blood Diner. I have many, many thoughts about this film. (laughs) Oh boy, here we go. (laughs) Okay, so let's start off with the production of this film. So uh, according to Simon Boehm, Quote, the movie was initially supposed to be an homage and sequel to producer Herschel Gordon Lewis's 1963 movie Blood Feast, which follows a similar plot line. Uh, Lewis was even approached to direct it himself, but his asking price was too high, which blows my mind, by the way. <laughs> like, what could he have asked for? Instead, Jackie Kahn stepped in, and with her, the tone of the movie changed, for she saw the humor in the script and and accentuated it, unquote. And according to Megan Navarro, quote, Kong saw the humor in the script and pushed it as far as she could. So all of the zany antics in the film, like characters randomly switching accents throughout the film, <laughs> or rival diner owner Stan's best friend being an inanimate dummy, <laughs> all intentional. Yes. Oh, God. So the director wasn't just interested in pushing the envelope for humor's sake, but also for the sake of diehard genre fans. She knew horror fans are difficult to surprise, so she sought to catch even the most jaded horror fan off guard, unquote. So, Allison, you were telling us right before we started recording Mm -hmm. um, a story about the dummy. Uh, What what is that story again? (laughs) Oh, well, this is fantastic. So I think I was I was watching an interview with Jackie Kong mm-hmm. and it was in the documentary um, Killer Cuisine, The Making of Blood Diner, which is excellent and everybody should watch. Jackie Kong 
says that she was auditioning people for the part of the um, man's friend. So the man is called Stan and he runs a rival diner and no one is going to Stan's diner anymore because of the amazing food at the blood diner. Right. So Stan's really upset about it and he was supposed to have a friend that he kind of bounced off. But um, Jackie was auditioning people and was just like, no, none of these people can act. These people are all terrible. And I mean, she was taking like pretty much non-actors for most of the roles anyway. So my Lord, you know, what they were actually like, the ones she was seeing for this part. And in the end she went, you know what? I don't, I don't need an actor, a dummy could do better than these people. So she got a production designer to make up a mannequin and just said, um, you know what? This symbolizes his loneliness. And um, how Stan is isolated and the only person that he has in the world is a dummy. And I was like, well, I don't see that. But I love that there's a dummy that everybody just treats as a normal person. So that's fine by me. You're like, this is fine. Yeah, this yeah. is normal. Yeah. When I, yeah. First, when I first saw this film, I was so confused. I, thought, I truly thought I truly thought I missed a, a plot detail. I thought, yes, is there something that I missed? Is this person like I thought maybe the friend was like making the voice. And so everyone was like playing <laughs> along like, oh, everyone knows this guy is a yeah. little nutty. And yeah. he has this friend and he does the voice for him. But no, it's no, like, no, no. But I think by the time you get to Stan's rival diner, the fact that there's a mannequin playing a part, it's just you've already accepted so many crazy yeah. things in Blood Diner by that point. You're like, well, that's the rules of this world. So that's oh my fine God. by me. So true, though. <laughs> so uh, there's actually some disagreement as to who was really responsible for the humor, which I find really interesting. Mm. According to Bryant Fraser, quote, Kong claims that the script she was given was, quote unquote, as serious as a heart attack. And that she had to work to inject humor into the proceedings. Yet Sonia relates to a story about calling Maslin, who was the producer, uh, calling him up to discuss his ideas for the film. He claims that if Maslin didn't laugh, if the ideas weren't inherently funny, he didn't use them. And so it's possible that Kong was just on a completely different wavelength from Maslon and Sanye when it came to the humor. But there is a fundamental disagreement here on who was responsible for the picture's overtly comic tone. Sanye also mentions that he had hoped to play a role in the film, but was barred from the set by Kong. So there's that, unquote. Um, I do have some thoughts on this. I know that usually directors don't like having the screenwriters on set <laughs> oh yeah so um the so yeah okay he wanted to be in a role whatever but just the fact that she didn't want him on set like just makes th that to me just makes sense anyway because obviously right and i'm wondering yeah. if kong felt that way she felt like sonia was going to kind of take over what is initially her film yeah so i don't blame her there I don't either. And um, she's talked a lot about this. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it really makes sense. And I'm kind of with you on this. She'd said that she had three weeks to shoot Blood Diner. 
she shot it six days a week for three weeks, 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. the, only way, the only way that she could shoot a feature film in that time was to rehearse the hell out of it. And any changes that were going to be made needed to be made in rehearsal. Mm. And then it, when it got to filming, there was absolutely no improvisation, no room for doing anything other than what they'd agreed. And she'd literally mapped out every single shot every single camera angle and it was down to business Mm. let's make this film so the idea of the writer coming on board and being like hey guys like that's not what i saw his motivation to be you know i don't i don't see that flying you know and i i don't know sonia personally but i just feel like (laughs) because (laughs) because kong is a woman and she is a woman of color i can see a white man telling her what to do and how to make his movie Mm. and maybe that's not the case maybe he wouldn't have done that but i feel like she was protecting herself and her film and i think that that was a smart choice on her end to stand her ground and to not let him on the set Mm -hmm. yeah and let's remember this is her third feature film by this point she came onto this project because she had a three picture deal with Vestron Video Mm -hmm. and they brought her in to make this film so she'd already made two she knew what she was doing she was very ambitious but at the same time she was a very young woman in her early 20s she was a woman of colour working in the 1980s in horror you know, I think that idea of protecting yourself by being incredibly efficient and profession- professional, it, it makes complete sense. Totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so according to Bradford Nordine for Screenslate, but Blood Diner was made for $300,000, so for nothing. Yeah. But Kong was born a cinephile. She received her first uh, 16mm camera from Marlon Brando as a gift for her 18th birthday. You can catch wind of that real fast. Blood Diner has a startlingly opulent and technically competent mise-en-scene. I've sat through a million low-budget films. I can tell when someone knows their shit, unquote. Um, I was going to say, um, what the, the reasons that I love Blood Diner are it's like craziness and you never know what's going to happen and it's completely idiosyncratic. But actually, like drawing on what you were just saying, if you actually look at it, the competency of the filmmaking, not necessarily always the script, not necessarily always the acting, but the actual filmmaking is really good. Like when you see those scenes in the diner, in the brother's diner, there's multiple planes of depth. Mm. Like she's working mm-hmm. across all, she, she's she got that place that is full of extras. There's like a hundred extras in the club scene at the end. She's got a really good handle on how to use those really big crowd scenes. She knows how to set up a shot. She knows how to frame it. Like everything in it is really well done. I just don't think we always notice because we're like, hey, there's a man being run over or there's a <laughs> naked woman karate chopping someone with an axe. So you don't really notice. That is so true. You don't really notice the behind the scenes part of how to make a film really good looking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And on no money, on the fastest 
shooting time ever. Yeah, that's so true. So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film was given a limited release theatrically in the United States by Lightning Pictures Incorporated in July 1987. It was released on VHS the same year by Vestron Video, unquote. Mm -hmm. And according to Gregory, Gregory Smalley, quote, Blood Diner was originally banned in some Canadian provinces and in Iceland and was heavily cut for release in other countries, unquote. Uh, Allison, since you're in England, do you know of anything <laughs> going on with like Blood Diner being cut? Um, I don't off the top of my head, but um, as you were saying, I was thinking, oh, I should really go look that up. So the um, the British Board of Film Censorship, the BBFC, mm-hmm. they've got um, they've got a limit on how far back you can go in the files. So I'm wondering if you can get at the Blood Diner files now. But if you think it's like 1987 when this film comes out theatrically, 1988 for um, the video, the home video market, this would be certainly in the UK the full height of the video nasties craze. Mm -hmm. So this would, I would be very surprised if this got a decent release here. I imagine it would be banned or heavily chopped up at the very least, because this was the time of the real moral panics about the absolute dreadfulness of horror and what it was doing to the general public. So something like, yeah. So Jackie Kong's talked about being sat with the, I think, is it the MPAA? Who rates it for, yeah. So he's talked about being sat with the MPAA to rate it for the American markets. And they were just disgusted and said it has no redeeming moral qualities whatsoever. (laughs) And she said, they said, if you heavily, heavily cut it, we'll give you an X rating. And she said, well, I'm not going to cut it. I'm just going to send it out unrated. Again, this comes from Jackie Kong's interviews. And there is a certain element, I suspect, of Mm self-mythologizing. But the, the fact that it came out unrated from the MPAA would have been a big red flag for the BBFC. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. Okay. So Jacob Knight says of the film, quote, in reality, Blood Diner is special because it isn't for everyone. Kong brings an outsider flair to what could have been just another slasher movie and makes it totally her own. She crafted a motion picture for a specific audience while retaining her own gonzo sensibilities, resulting in a rather idiosyncratic VHS nightmare, quote. (laughs) Yes. What a great quote. I know. I was like, I have to end the production on this one. This is wonderful. And this just summarizes for me why I love Blood Diner. It's the idiosyncrasy. So this sounds like a really weird parallel or a really weird stretch. But what I get from Blood Diner is the same thing that I get from us, as in the Jordan Peele us. Yes. (laughs) Which is... I feel like there are things in this film, in Blood Diner, that you would never see in any other film. Mm, and what, no. what I want from a film is a sense that a filmmaker is making something that only they would make, and they filled it with things that only they are into. So, you know, in Blood Diner's case, it's a pantomime horse, and it's, um, you know, the naked woman doing karate chops, or it's the mannequin, <laughs> Or it's um, Detective Sheba Jackson, who has the strangest range of accents I've ever heard. And then in Us, we've got the same kind of things. You've got scissors and red boiler suits and rabbits and things like that. And it's these little idiosyncratic details that I love that just makes a really rich horror film for me. Mm -hmm. That is so well said. And I... 
I, I, I'm like clapping in my head. I'm like, yes, that's so <laughs> Thank true. Thank you. <laughs> oh true. my goodness. Okay, so let's uh, discuss the plot really quick. Abby, could you read the plot summary for us? Yes. Brothers Michael and George Tutman resurrect their dead uncle Anwar Namtut using a spell book he left them as boys. Returning as a brain in a jar of formaldehyde, Uncle Anwar <laughs> distracts the boy. I'm sorry, it's just so funny to me. <laughs> he instructs the boys in the ways of resurrection, and the three of them stitch together a body fit for the goddess Shitar. In order to resurrect her, they must construct a Lumerian feast that consists of enough human body parts to bring the goddess to life. While doing so, they feed the body parts of their victims to their unknowing vegetarian diner patrons. But who are their victims? So-called immoral women that live in the area and one virgin that the goddess will consume upon her awakening. Will the bumbling policemen in town catch on to their sinister plot before it's too late? Or will the men succeed with their evil plan to resurrect Shitar at the expense of innocent women? So let's talk about the Bechtel test. Uh, yes, it passes. Connie, Di- yes, Connie, <laughs> Dinah, and Claire, Clarice, uh, they all talk about going to topless aerobics and cheerleading. <laughs> <laughs> so I laughed when I heard that because I thought, you know, it technically passes. <laughs> so yeah. It's about yeah. topless aerobics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's now discuss Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, it just misses. Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Yes, the film was produced and directed by Jackie Kong. It was also produced by Elle Stelloff. Um, do you know, Allison, of any other female uh, behind-the-scenes uh, members, cast members? Um, I think they're the main ones in the kind of roles that I'm interested in, which is like producer, director, screenwriter, production designer. Um, What Jackie Kong has said, though, is my films have always had women behind the camera in key positions. Yes. And that um, in all her films, at least half of the key positions are filled by women. Um, what, What I would say, though, is I do think they do tend to lean to the the more um, traditionally um, sex-orientated roles such as um, makeup or costume and right, things like yeah. that. So we have her directing and producing, which is amazing. And then we have the executive producer, um, Elle Stelloff, that you've mentioned, who um, Jackie Kong has repeatedly said, Elle Stelloff is the one who brought this project together, who really got everything together to make the film happen. So uh, she sounds like a very hands-on executive producer which is not always the case yes that's amazing oh good thank you for that input no problem (laughs) so was the final girl or main character a person of color no there is only one person of color in this film with a main role and that's lynette lafrance's character um and she isn't technically the main character but she is a major part of the film and of course we can't overlook the fact that this film was made by a woman of color too jackie kong is asian american Okay, so were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. So let's start off with Sheetar. They call me Sheetar. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I get chills at that ending. 
Maybe I'm the only one, but I love that ending. I think it's so spooky and just perfect way to end it. And then the doo-wop happening after. Oh my God. Mm, That's like, that is probably one of my favorite endings in a horror film. Yeah. Okay. It's really good. Yes, it is. Okay. So let's talk about Sheetar because, you know, she's a huge part of this movie. Um, She's not an actual Egyptian goddess. (laughs) Um, She is fake. (laughs) But she is obviously influenced by a few quote-unquote real goddesses, and one of them, I think, is Kali. Uh, But first, I want to give you all a description of Shitar from her female villain wiki page. Uh, Quote, having resurrected their uncle, the boys set out to make a body vessel for the earthly incantation of Shitar, who is an Egyptian goddess to whom they pray to. In addition, they must prepare a blood buffet to attract the Shitar's spirit to the resurrection ceremony and find a female version to sacrifice the and to complete the ceremony. Uh, Shitar has a Venus flytrap mouth on her abdomen, which nice. runs vertically from <laughs> between her breasts down to her belly button. And she uses this vagina mouth to devour some of her victims. In addition, Shitar uses a supernatural burst of energy from her fingers to do her killing. In the end, she is credited with killing 66 at the nightclub, unquote. So that's actually a really impressive kill count. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, You don't get that kind of kill count in every horror film. So I think that that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so now I want to mention Kali. According to Annalisa Morelli's article entitled, Kali is the 3,000-year-old feminist icon we need today... Quote, she is a true monster in that she is both frightening and awe-inspiring, beautiful in a way that isn't in any way pretty, not shallow, not manageable, not comfortable. Kali couldn't care less if she is likable or not. She isn't afraid of her force, and if you are, that's on you. She isn't the kind of deity that will easily be found sitting on a drawing room shelf or hanging from a wall with marigold garlands around her frame. And that's just fine. She's got to slay. Kali is the quintessential embodiment of Shakti, female power, unquote. Yes, Shitar is cool as heck. (laughs) Like, I really love the idea that women need to feed in such an intense way because they're givers. Like, they give their bodies and their life and love and power to kind of benefit all of the people around them. Mm. And, like... Obviously not always, that's not always the case, but Mm. when you look at a lot of themes, even outside of horror, that's usually the case with female characters. So it makes sense that Shitar would be such a formidable goddess like Kali, because she is literally made from pain and suffering. And that collective energy of women wanting to be recognized and seen and heard Mm -hmm. is shown through her monstrousness. Mm -hmm. So... It's amazing for such, like, a schlocky film. (laughs) And it totally bites the men in this film right in the ass. Like, like, off Sheetar goes into the night, basically seeking vengeance on random men. So it's poetic justice for all of the women who were wronged in the film. So I really, I love Sheetar. Right. And I think it's really interesting. I'm going to go off script here for a minute, but I think it's really mm. interesting that she she does kill some of the women, obviously, that are in the, mm-hmm. the club. But she doesn't end up eating the virgin. Mm-hmm. No. She ends up eating the two men 
who resurrect yeah. her. The bad guys. The she bad eats guys. the bad guys. She does. She <laughs> eats the bad guys. And I think that, you know, and even her brain, uh, Uncle Anwar, is put inside of her head, right? At, at one point in the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the fact that he is now a part of the female form, he is now a part yeah. of her 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 godlike body, her goddess form, uh, mm-hmm. I think it's also really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's funny that this builds up, builds up, builds up as women are about to be destroyed by this yep. other woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ends up not being the case. At the end, we assume she's going to eat the guy in the car who picks her up. Yeah. Which, which is great as well, because the guy who picks her up in, at the end, he's like literally curb crawling her. Yes. Like, yes. you know, hey, lady, you look fine. And yes. it's just like, he's a massive douchebag. Yes. And like, you're desperate for him to die immediately. So it's really satisfying <laughs> when she gets yeah. in the car with him because you're like, oh, you're going to get it now. You're yes. going to get it bad. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And just the fact that she has the vagina dentata on her body. Uh, Yes. According to Nordine Bradford, quote, the brothers are building a female Frankenstein in order to resurrect an Egyptian goddess named Shitar who will commence her reign of matronly terror. This absolutely bonkers film reaches its climax in a punk club where a virgin sacrifice takes place in plain view of a crowd busy moshing to a performance (laughs) by a band fronted by a singer with a massive pompadour. His backing instrumental instrument, instrumentalists are dressed like Hitler with yes, hanging around their necks. Yikes. Because of her gold-painted skin and a massive vagina dentata tracing from her breasts to her genitals, I lose myself in an protectual screen fantasy and start to read Shitar as the Los Angeles punk performance artist Joanna Went, who would perform in similar venues with elaborately cartoonish sets, power tools, and animal entrails, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> and I love this. God. And I love this because, yeah, like, Cheetar is sort of like a performance artist on this stage. Yes. And she, I mean, like, this definitely Joanna went, but I also think of people like Courtney Love, who just. Oh my God, yes. Completely <laughs> are like, appear to be like a hot mess on the stage. But it is all about like this female rage and this female mm-hmm. hunger that these uh, performance artists and these punk uh, artists, women, who are trying to show like how badass they are and how uh, normal their rage is. Yeah. I, f- I feel like this analysis is so spot on though about saying Sheeta as the LA punk performance artist. Because again, um, in interviews, Kong has said they didn't have enough money to pay professional actors. Um, like they couldn't afford people from the Screen Actors Guild. Mm. So they went for people who wanted to act but had never acted before as is apparent at times throughout the film. Um, But then she wanted loads of extras because she wanted it to feel like a proper club. So she went round and recruited people from the local LA punk rock scene. So the um, guy who plays one of the brothers, the one who plays Mikey, he was a singer in a punk band and he basically used a lot of his friends and a lot of the hangers on and a lot of the general LA punk LA performance scene are in that nightclub. They're all in there being crazy. So I feel like this, 
this analysis is so on the money for the actual literal production context of this film. That's amazing. I had no idea. And that does make so much sense now. Yeah. That all yeah. Together. Okay. So our next topic is an idealized America and fad fixation in Blood Diner. So according to Jacob Knight for Birth Movies Death, quote, there's a musical ingredient Kong adds to this already garish layer cake of atrocity. <laughs> Most of Blood Diner is scored in 50s doo-wop, connecting, with the, connecting it with the idealized memory of America's past. But then a big-haired neon new wave arena is built into the narrative as the brothers hang out at a strobe-lit jam space called Club Dread. <laughs> well, at first, it seems if as if Kong is simply tacking on another 80s trend to her already era-appropriate aesthetic, the full-blown concert scenes that come at the picture's climax continue the odd, probably unintentional, thematic ridiculing of the United States' fad fixation. The boys are guided by an obscenity-spewing brain that is puritanically motivated and lost its body during the Rockwellian epoch. So a full-scale slaughter at a disco devoted to this musical style seems somewhat logical as he's purifying the country by wiping it clean of these sinful kids' songs. In short, he is quote-unquote making America great again by summoning an, an archaic god and subsequently feeding a flock of seagulls to the monster vagina that grows in her stomach. The, oh, greatest, <laughs> the greatest generation will have its revenge, and the death angel is Uncle Anwar, unquote. Oh, what I did find is that there's a lot of great quotes about people talking about this film. It's very poetic almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm just really enjoying that suggesting this film to listen to you analyze it and give these quotes as well. This is just a total pleasure for me. Oh, <laughs> It's amazing. I I feel like my vocabulary is growing. It's wonderful. (laughs) Okay, so this also connects really well with the fact that the brothers own a health-conscious vegetarian diner. Or so they say. (laughs) Because they're tricking the customers and giving them not just meat, but human meat. The diner customers don't seem to realize it because, I mean... (laughs) I'm sure they've never tasted human flesh before. But the fact that they don't know something is up with their food is so ironic to me because they are trying to be more health conscious about what they consume. And so I just feel like to me, like this is sort of a jab at fad diets. Yeah, Yeah. completely. I mean, there's even a bit where um, Detective Jackson is at Stan's diner and they're like, we're looking for a couple of psychos that want to pick on vegetarians. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally what they're saying. Like, they are completely taking the mick. They really are. (laughs) Well, and like... um... Uh, one, I think it's Connie or the uh, one of the um, yeah. yes. So Connie is like, well, I tried to make us all like a pure vegetarian cheerleading squad, and then somebody <laughs> else did it. So then I had to change it, and then she had to get to topless aerobics in order to be different. Yeah, and so it's funny the what we will do to appear different, and, yes. and I think that that's sort of what happens here. Yeah, definitely. I mean. We touched on this, too, um, a little bit in our Frankenhooker episode. Mm-hmm. And, like, I have to say, for me at least, these two films are so comparable in theme a lot. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the episode. But, 
I mean, at this time, and much like every other decade in America, appearances were everything. Yes. So from mm-hmm. from the outside, like all these fads and stuff like that, it's just a normal everyday thing. But when you look closer at the absolute absurdity of it all, it's a really intense ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that happening in this film. And I'm really glad that you brought up Frankenhooker because um, – Almost every article that I found, somebody brought up Frankenhooker. Mm-hmm. Oh! <laughs> at least once. Uh, and how it was really similar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so of course I want to mention the topless exercising scene. Oh <laughs> and of course the bloody <laughs> aftermath. It's a, a terrible, horrifying scene, mostly because we've dealt with such terrible atrocities in the U.S., especially... But also all over the world, like it, this has mm-hmm. happened. But gun mm-hmm. violence against women, just trying to get fit and feel sexy, is unfortunately not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And it might feel like it's supposed to be like a spoof on, again, fads and maybe even horror tropes. But it seems really real to me, too, like when I watch that scene. And yeah. the fact that the brothers have Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan masks on seems to speak volumes as well. Like, Mm -hmm. the Reagans were and still are beloved by most conservatives. And according to Eugene Kang, quote, beyond the the feminist touches, there are critiques of mass American culture during this time as well. In fact, Blood Diner is also a satire of the American health craze of the 80s, as the nude aerobic scene might suggest. For example, the secret sauce that makes the brothers' vegetarian food taste so good is actually a mixture of animal parts from a recipe that Uncle Anwar gave them. Even the casting of the two male leads was a comment on masculinity. The two brothers are handsome, attractive men, and are comparatively quite straight-laced compared to the LA counterculture they were immersed in. Kong said that she wanted to model them after the holier-than-thou types who would bomb abortion clinics to show that often even the most clean-cut, well-put-together people can be guilty of the most twisted deeds. Blood Diner manages to capture a spirit of the time while focusing almost exclusively on its counterculture. The era of Reaganomics, and how it manifested in mass consumerism and commercialism and commercialization, even at its lowest levels, is a subtle but very real backdrop to the horror mayhem. The objectification of women by a society that endorses it is present in the time of sexual prudishness and deliberately excluded anyone that wasn't straight and cisgender. Only mm-hmm. One need only look at the AIDS crisis and the devastation it wreaked on the gay community for an example of this deliberate ignorance, unquote. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yeah. It also feels like a commentary on the direction that horror went during the 80s and well into the 90s Mm -hmm. when women were seen as victims or helpless people who couldn't get by without the assistance of a male counterpart. Mm. And... Yeah. I think Kong really seemed to obviously notice the sexualization of women in gory situations and how exploitation had really taken hold in the genre. And she blew it up into a bigger picture for her audience. So you might be sitting there watching this film and say to yourself, like, this is bananas and so over the top. <laughs> like, what even? Yes. But she was doing it. In a campier, like, more in-your-face kind of way, which is kind of <laughs> hilarious to say because 
everything was over the top in the 80s when it came to gore and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, as far as attacks on women go, like, yeah, this is still happening in America. And I mean, all over the world, actually. And it feels eerily familiar to me. Like, this is something I would almost expect to see on the nightly news. Yeah. And I think the recent um, killing of the Asian American women Mm -hmm. uh, in Atlanta. Um, it really, I think after watching this film and watching that scene and knowing that Kong is an Asian American, um, was kind of devastating almost. So yeah, it was like a weird synchronicity. Like, and I was like, whoa, this is, this is the, the strangest timing to be watching this film. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I don't think there's any question about it that this film is totally like tongue in cheek with that too. Like Kong knew exactly what she was making. Mm-hmm. Bryant Fraser says, quote, when Uncle Anwar starts reminiscing fondly about his life in crime, Kong cuts to footage of old black and white roughies featuring scenes of sexual violence set to good timey polka music as flashbacks, acknowledging her own movie's place in the continuum of exploitation cinema while simultaneously criticizing its problematic nature, unquote. Uh Yeah. So (laughs) let's talk about uh, this, this next thing. This kind of connects to it. Um, Yes. Is Blood Diner feminist? (laughs) (laughs) Because we all know just because a movie is directed by a woman or even a woman of color that doesn't necessarily mean a film is feminist um but i think it is so let's go we'll get into it (laughs) um okay so according according to eugene kang quote while blood diner does feature the rampant violence against women typical of many horror movies there are many sly feminist touches as well when women got to direct horror movies around this time time period it was usually for schlockmeister roger corman Mm-hmm. One of Corman's main tenets for the main, many movies he produced was there had to be sex and nudity, only female. Since Kong didn't work for Corman and faced relatively little restriction from her producers, which one of her producers was a female, her use of female nudity is quite different and not yes. nearly ex- as exploitive as it was in Corman pictures. Mm-hmm. A scene where the brothers try to kill a couple in a park is turned on its head when the naked woman... One when one of the naked women is trying to pursue, a, uh, they are trying to pursue. Unexpectedly, uses karate on him when she is cornered. Often, the excess of nudity in Blood Diner is a criticism in and of itself. For example, a nude female aerobics class, like we mentioned earlier, serves the yeah. double purpose of sustainably of fulfilling the unofficial nudity quota and was a parody of fad workouts that were popular during the eighties. Funnily enough, nude aerobics would actually become a thing after this movie, unquote. <laughs> I, I, I love this. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. That to me, I think when, because when the woman who does karate, like right before that happens, I thought, oh great, there's full frontal nudity when I, in this film. And yeah. um, I did not know. When I first watched this movie, I did not know it was directed by a woman. I had no idea. Right. I, just, I just sort of saw it. Um, yeah, I was like, oh, this looks interesting and watched it. Um, so when she started doing karate and she started <laughs> fighting him, I was like, yes, like this is amazing because, yeah, it is sort of a parody on the vulnerable naked woman. Yes, yeah, I, I love it. This is um, this is where, um, you know, like 
when you're a director, you can make a film and you have your intention of what you want the film to do and how you want it to be perceived. Mm -hmm. But that isn't always necessarily how the audience perceives it. But when I watch Blood Diner, I have a little story in my head, which is that a lot of these scenes that you're discussing were maybe played straight originally in the script. And then Jackie Kong comes along in my feminist story of this that I'm imagining in my own head. Yeah, you're And then she's, yeah, and she's like, right, well, we're doing full frontal nudity here and we're doing the woman being attacked in a park by a man. Fine, let's make the woman do karate on him then. You know, and this is a story I tell myself all the way through Blood Diner. So when there's a nude woman laid out on a table in the diner that he's um, put her head in a fryer, the fact that she then jumps up with a giant fried head and then the fried ball head has giant gold earrings on. You know, it's this, I like to think that's um, Jackie Kung going, oh, well, fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Or, or the... Or the woman who, I'm sorry, I'm laughing just thinking of it. Or the woman who uh, drops her purse. Yes. Oh my God. I, yes. Like, I feel like I've seen, like, that feels like something from, like, a yes. from scary movie, right? Where it's like, oh, yes. like, oh, my purse. And she, like, runs back and tries to put it all back Yeah. And she, like, <laughs> is just about to run out the door. And she's like, oh, no, wait. And she goes back for her purse. I don't know. It was, like, genius. Because I feel like totally. you, you can get jaded from watching uh, horror comedies now because I feel like that's done a lot now. Like yeah, I said, yeah. like scary movie. But if you really think about it, like this film came out in 1987. Like this was before I was exactly. born. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, uh, exactly. The fact that she was doing that kind of humor <laughs> is so great. And so, uh, yeah, I love that she kind of parodied like horror itself and like women and horror with this film. <laughs> And that's it. And she's clear. She's clearly doing this, you know, like horror critics or horror scholars or whoever can be um, often accused of reading too much into the film and making meaning where there wasn't any. But it is blatant in this yeah. film. It is blatant. She is specifically playing on the trope of, oh, a woman has gone back to get her handbag and then plays it out and plays it out and plays it out until it becomes ridiculous. Like, there is no doubt here that she knows that she's playing with these ideas. Yes. And like the, like you said, like we were talking about this before we started recording, Um, the guy that gets run over by the car multiple times. <laughs> it feels like a skit from like Family Guy. Yeah. Yeah. Just oh my that god. Yeah. Drilling that joke and just drilling it until it gets to be like, when is this gonna stop? And yeah. <laughs> well, like it, she does something funny, like the guy being run over, which if you haven't yet seen the film, doesn't sound funny, but it's funny. And then the fact that they keeps running him over backwards and forwards while there's like, um, I think is it mambo music playing? Yes. And then yes. it kind of stops being funny and just starts being weird because you're like, where is this going? But then you come out the other side of that and it starts being funny again. So. <laughs> And you're like, oh, wow, I was kind of worried for a minute there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just laughing. I'm just crying laughing thinking about that scene right now. Oh, my now. God, I know. It's so, oh, it's so much. <laughs> well, and I think it's really funny because Abby and I were talking over text about it. And Abby mm -hmm. Abby has a very, I'm, I'm calling you Abby, but Abby has a very specific <laughs> taste in schlock. I do. Right. I and really she do. Was like, and she was like, I, I didn't really like this movie. And I, mm -hmm. and I wrote, I said, you didn't laugh when the guy kept getting hit by the car? And she said, <laughs> and Abby, you said something like, oh yeah, actually I did laugh a few times. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then I was like, oh yeah. And then there was the lady who got her head fried and then knocked out with a golf club. That was pretty funny. I was like, okay, yeah. all right, all right. All right. Like, you, yeah, you're like, you got me. It was funny. Yeah. <laughs> but Abby, I want to hear what you have to say about this. Yes. I mean, I feel like there's a lot to unpack with this film because at first now talking about it I'm like oh okay yes like I can see like the the very clear feminism in this film but like before when I first watched it I was like this can Mm -hmm. go both ways but I think it just takes a little bit more thought than what's presented on the surface when it comes to a couple things so Mm According to Bryant Fraser for Deep Focus, he says it's lucky that a woman was at the helm of Blood Diner, a PMS Filmworks production. (laughs) As as Kong's interpretation probably went some way towards diffusing the misogyny inherent in a script about men who take orders to seduce and murder everyday tramps in order to pave the way for the return Mm -hmm. of a mythical goddess. It's not that Kong backs off on the film's gonzo nature. Rather, she embraces it and shapes its energy. So when we talked about Frankenhooker, I feel like a lot of the same topics were touched on when it comes to like body image and the male gaze and violence against women, normalizing sex and sex work, etc. But also unhinged female power. I like... It's about women taking back what men have taken from them or not conforming to the male idea of what Mm -hmm. women should be. Mm. So for that, I think it qualifies as a feminist film for sure. And it's not even just like the theme of the film. It is also because of the production and like the actual making Mm -hmm. of the film, like right down to what Jackie Kong has done with like the entire vision of it. So yeah, I mean, I would definitely argue that it is very feminist. Here, here. There's loads of bits to it that make it feminism for me. You're so right when you say, like, just because a woman has directed it doesn't mean it's going to be feminist and, like, men can make feminist horror films and all that. But there's so many touches in this that I just love and that I can I can very easily read as feminist. It's not like I need to dig deep or go for like a counter subversive reading in order to get my kind of feminist fill. There's so much like we mentioned very briefly earlier and the fact that there's a woman of color on the screen who isn't a main character, but is playing a fairly major role. And Lynette LaFrance plays um, Detective Sheba Jackson. And at one point it's said that Sheba, I think is from New York, but sometimes she sounds Welsh. And yes. sometimes she's from like, like what? what is going on? But she's in it all the way through. And at some point I want to make a video essay just on Sheba Jackson in this film. Cause it is yes. so rare, particularly in like horror comedy or kind of splatter horror to have a woman of color who has such a prominent part And she's got to deal with this dopey, like awful sidekick who's always trying to come on to her. And she's having none of it. She's a very strong woman. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's 
solves the crime. She's the one who breaks into the nightclub Mm -hmm. and actually stops the sacrifice taking place. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm here for Sheba. And it's one of the ways like I enjoy reading the feminism and it's seeing this smart, strangely accented woman of colour at a time when women of colour in horror films were more likely to be playing really servile roles. Mm, Like, it's just wonderful to see a woman in there doing that and the way that she keeps just shouting at her partner all the way through and ignoring him is is just a work of joy that's so true and you know i feel like people of color and horror were also Mm -hmm. sort of like the funny sidekicks exactly and she is not that you're right like she is the one that gets shit done and her white male um partner is the one who's kind of dopey kind of can't kind of can't figure anything out and she has to rescue him yeah, exactly. And she doesn't exactly. play that role, which is great. And she doesn't. Al- she also doesn't play the role the or the trope that is so harmful of the angry black woman either. Exactly. Yeah. So the fact that she is uh, just a human being is yes. just, I, it sounds awful, but it's like, that is great because it's like yes. so many times, like people of color, especially women, women of color, and like you said, like even in horror are given these tropes and they have to like check off like okay this is like the trope that they're playing yeah she and that is not what happens to her and it's great and it's sad that it's so great (laughs) yeah it's sad that we have to celebrate it isn't it (laughs) yes it's sad that we have to celebrate it but uh i think that that is you're right like that is one of the reasons blood diner is so powerful and so uh, amazing amazing film for everyone who loves Mm -hmm. horror to watch Okay, so let's get into our final thought. Let's just do a little spotlight on Jackie Kong. Allison, you have seen a few interviews with her. You seem to know Mm -hmm. a little bit more about her than we do, so I'm really interested to hear more of anything that you have to add about her. Um, But I do want to share this from uh, William Dawes, who writes for Film School Rejects, quote, Blood Diner was directed by a young Jackie Kong. She made her first movie, The Bean, in 1983. Her last movie was The Underachievers, which was also released in 1987. And she spent much of her time after that working for a nonprofit organization called Asian American Media Development to advocate for increased representation in cinema. Blood Diner is a gonzo chunk of hilarious trash cinema, and I wish we could see more of her work. It's a weird feeling to discover a decade-old body of work that makes you suddenly realize how much you have missed. I love her style. Her mean, gory, burpy, barfy, gross, hilarious style. Unquote. <laughs> um, and Kong did a great interview with Danny Darko for Bloody Disgusting, and I want to share some things she said. Danny Darko says, What were the challenges you faced, if any, being a female filmmaker? Any advice for those that wish to follow in your footsteps? And Kong says, every possible obstacle since I was a young woman of color in a white male dominated field, I was considered quite a weirdo. No one knew what to make of me. I couldn't be categorized. They became confused by the gender and race issues I presented. I had to be crazy to tackle it, but I think when I work, my crew and cast see that I know what I'm doing. They follow my lead wholeheartedly. Kong also said, there needs to be a change in perception that women can do the job and then some, but I have been chiseling away at that stereotype. It's really slow going because of the unspoken bias that decision makers need to acknowledge and tackle with actions, not lip service. 
But I'm confident as we speak up and make our voices heard, times will eventually change, unquote. Yeah, there's so much. Um, one of, this is another reason why I enjoy um, getting people to talk about Blood Diner is that Jackie Kong says many wise things and she's very reflective and she's very aware of her place within or outside the industry and how that's impacted on her. So she said before, I outdid the boys with Blood Diner, mm. but instead of giving me opportunities in the industry, people thought I was a guy. So that picks up completely what you were saying there about the fact that she'd go for meetings and when they were expecting a guy called Jackie and then a very young woman of colour turned up and it threw everybody. Mm. And she says she's still facing problems relating to discrimination. And this was in 2020. Mm. So she said when she was making these films in the 1980s, she had three things that went against her. She was very young. So she was in her very early 20s when she made The Being. And if you haven't seen The Being, you should see it. It's not quite as wild or crazy as Blood Diner, but it's very entertaining. Um, so she was in her early 20s, so she was very young, she was female, and she was Asian American. And she said those three things all massively went against her in the 1980s, and she just couldn't make the breaks in the industry that she wanted to. But now, um, kind of 2016 onwards, as we come up to the kind of 30-year anniversary of Blood Diner, there's a growing sense of recognition of Jackie Kong as a filmmaker and of what her works have done. But she's facing new discrimination now. She says, now everybody says she's too old. So oh. they're, prepared, they're prepared to now countenance considering a woman director. And they'll even potentially maybe consider a woman of colour directing but they want someone in their 20s. Oh my God. Oh. They're not prepared to take someone in their 50s. And she's laughed now and just says, you know what? They just don't want to work with me. You know, that is so disheartening though to hear because that is that is also another thing that women yeah. deal with in media is their age. Yep. So we are women are constantly ridiculed for their age or they are not casted or hired because they are quote unquote too old, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that that is an issue to me breaks my heart for her, yeah. truly. Completely. What we have to do is um, look to organizations. Well, look to yourselves to like podcasts like Good Morning Nancy, to um, organizations like Etheria Film Night, who awarded her like an inspiration award a few years ago. And it's these kind of um, more grassroots communities that are making the noise about Jackie Kong and about her work. And hopefully, if like enough people make a noise, like they will have to listen. Right. You're right. Absolutely. Wow. That is a great place to end this episode. Um, Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I very much enjoyed it. I'm just sitting here listening to you. Like you can't see the look on my face, but I'm like smiling, like hearing everything oh, that you have yay. to say. I know. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Um, so what we do at the end of our episodes now is we talk about any good things that have been happening to us lately, we call it the sugar cubes and our coffee. So mm -hmm. um, I would like to ask everyone here, like what has been something nice that has happened? Um, I guess I'll start. My I got my first dose of the COVID vaccine. 
Hooray! And I'm, yeah, and I'm due to get my next one uh, next week. So I'm super excited to be vaccinated and to hopefully get out into the world <laughs> for mm-hmm. the next, yes. for, for, you know, to get back to normal, I suppose. Um, so that's been, and of course, <laughs> Allison, you being on the show, like I said at the beginning, like you're one of my horror academic heroes. So just having you on the show is like, <laughs> great news and I'm really excited so those yes. are the sugar cubes in my coffee Abby how about you um well I am now fully vaccinated yes yay so, yes <laughs> so that's very exciting and um the immunity will now be passed on to my baby when he is born yes oh, so that's, that's fantastic a, Yes, so that is a huge relief for me. Um, very, very excited about it. Um, and yeah, the weather is nice here, and I'm so happy about it that I can actually be outside. So. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Allison, you have some great news to share about your book. I do, I do. So just last night, so the timing is perfect, I attended the awards ceremony for the British Association of Film, Television and Screen Studies, which is quite a mouthful, I'm discovering as I say it out loud. (laughs) Um, We call it BAFTS for short. Yes. But I was at the awards ceremony for BAFTS last night as a finalist for the Best Edited Collection category for Women Make Horror. And last night, um, we won the award. So, yay! My, my bu- yay! My book's an award winner, and I'm That's really so excited. That's, That's so awesome! <laughs> I was so pleased. Um, they made me. There's like hundreds and hundreds of people on this video conferencing, and um, I had to put my video on because um, to, to accept the award and I hadn't expected to win it so it was just me looking a bit baffled in my pajamas with one of my cats and I was like oh thank you and that was about it okay well, that oh is that is a mood like yeah winning an award in your pajamas with your cat that is a mood. yeah it, it, it's my oldest cat I've got three cats and it was the 18 year old cat who's completely oh demented so they're like what it's happening. Yeah, like, better. oh my god. <laughs> oh my god, that's so awesome. Yes, I'm very happy for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Everyone, Thank please you. pick up a copy of Women Make Horror. It is so good. We just did an episode on Ginger Snaps and we quoted from it. So, uh, Oh, that's brilliant. I yes. didn't know that. Yes. I'll have to tell Kata who wrote the chapter. She'll be really pleased. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> I would love for her to listen to it. It was great. Um, but that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. If y'all like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, and that's okay, you can also show your financial support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more with our logo. So head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that'll take you right to our shop yes and we know times are tough right now so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media facebook at good morning nancy twitter at good morning nan and instagram at good morning nancy podcast don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show don't forget 
Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. Bye.